Welcome to All Power to the Developing, a podcast of the Eastside Institute, where social justice, human development, and community building come together. This is where you will meet activists, artists, teachers, scholars, helpers, and healers who are bringing creativity, hope, and possibility to individuals and communities all over the world. Developing listeners, this is Jan Wooten in New York. I'm on the faculty at the Eastside Institute, and I am so happy today to welcome John Updike to the show. Now, for those of you who don't know John, he is the president of Open Primaries, whose motto is No one should be required to join a political party to vote. John's a 25-year veteran and advocate for political reform. He's also a talented improv performer and for five years was part of the musical improv ensemble, The Proverbial Loons, at the Off-Off Broadway Castillo Theater in New York City. Uh, Castillo, a multiracial home for political and avant-garde performance. John is a very funny guy um, doing some really serious work to impact on the deadliness of U.S. political culture. And we're really happy to have him here today. John, hello. Thanks for coming. Hi, Jan. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. Thanks, thanks for doing this. So, John, um, I'm, uh, I've known you for years, and very early on in your, in your uh, career, uh, postgraduate studies, and as you were coming on as a as a grassroots activist and organizer, you studied philosophy and methodology and politics with Fred Newman, um, the co-founder of the Eastside Institute. And I, I I know that you must have had many conversations about creating a new kind of political life. Not to put you on the spot, but do you remember some of those conversations and what what was the what was the flavor of what you talked about? Well, you know, that's such a I mean, that's a podcast. And that one question is a <laughs> podcast in and of itself. I mean, getting getting the chance to work and study and learn from Fred Newman for, you know, 20 years was just incredibly rich and gratifying. And it was an endless process of challenging how you're taught to think and see in America. So Fred was so wonderful at deconstructing assumptions about politics, um, not only about politics, obviously, but, you know, the notion that that ideology is absolutely kind of a core defining feature of human beings and how they operate and come together. Um, you mean it's he not, all, John? No, it's not. And, <laughs> and or, or it is. Unfortunately, it is, but it isn't. It's, it's all present in American politics and in much of international politics, but it's one of these categories that might have even been useful at some point, but is not particularly growthful, developmental, useful at this point. Um, and, and in fact, is used to kind of keep people apart uh, in, in very artificial ways. And, you know, my, my favorite, I, 
quote from Fred um, is he said once uh, in, a, in a, a column that he wrote every week with Jackie Salet, uh, Talk Talk. He said, I don't tackle history. History tackles me. And that's a quote that I carry with me. And I, I try to practice politics with that in mind. My, my understanding of it is that we all want to make a change. We all want to make things happen. But you have to allow for space and you have to allow for development and you have to allow for history and not let your own ego and desire to get a, a particular outcome, you know, overdetermine everything. Um, hmm. You know, I think it was not so far from from when you were having these conversations that that Fred Newman and Lois Holzman back in 2003, we're going a few years back, published the eponymous all power to the developing. And as I recall, and, and I'm interested to hear what you took from this article, but part of what they were challenging was the way that we are divided ideologically. We're divided by race, by class, by wealth, by sexual orientation, every kind of binary that you can think of. And that they put forward that maybe if we were gonna create a new political culture, we had to kind of topple our way of thinking about things. How, do, do, do you recall that, John? And, and, and how did you hear that? And how did you begin integrating that into your work? Yeah, absolutely. And in some ways, it, 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 you're, you're so right. They were going up against the, the deadly categorization. And I think my understanding of it, I don't, I don't know if this is 100% accurate, is that part of what they were talking about was the over focus on categorizing what is and simply finding new labels and new ways of describing the status quo, how things are. And that if you're not doing politics by at least asking the question, what is becoming? What is there to create? What is emerging? You're missing the picture. You're missing the, the aspect of politics um, or the potential aspect of politics for people to create new ways of being, new ways of living together, new, new policies, new ways of, of um, reshaping the culture and the country in which they live. Um, so I, that's, what, that's what I took away from that piece. It's not just that the categories are undevelopmental, it's that when you're categorizing, you're categorizing what is, and you're not paying attention to what is becoming. Yeah. So it, tell us some about who you see developing in this country of ours, because, you know, John, we have a lot of listeners from overseas, and a lot of them are looking at us and saying, what is going on in the United States? So what is developing? What, what new... What new ways of people coming together do you see? Well, you know, you'd never, ever know this from watching network television or cable news or reading the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Um, but there is an exodus taking place among the American people from the, from the established political parties. Uh, people are leaving the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, which have run this country for 150 years. Um, and they're becoming 
independence. And what's interesting is they're not joining minor parties or, or new parties. They're saying, I don't want to be in a party. Uh, there, there is a growing, I think, suspicion. That's the word I would use. Suspicion among the American people that political parties, even if they have a great platform, even if they, they look good on paper, that they are too focused on their own self-interest and incapable of focusing on the country's best interests and the people's best interests. And so what's, what's emerging is a growing segment of the population, some pollsters have it at now 45% of America, that are saying we don't want to be in a political party, we want to vote for the best candidate, we want to shake up the very partisan culture. And the challenge is organizing that in a way that fully respects that people don't want to join political parties. Uh, a lot of what, uh, what, what happens in American politics is there's a huge amount of energy and money spent to get people who are independent to reaffiliate, to reconnect to the dominant political culture. And that's understandable. They have a lot of money and a lot of influence. I think the more creative work is how do you organize these, these independents in some new ways to do some new things. And that's what I think is the, the big untold story right now of what's happening in American politics. John, here's another, here's another question for you that I'm thinking as you're talking about this kind of you know, sucking noise of people running from political parties. Why? Why is that important, do you think, that phenomenon? What does it have to do with democracy? What does it have to do with people having a greater voice in how we're going to reperform this world? Well, you know, I, I, I think the American people are looking at a lot of gaps. This is a country of gaps, and it's not just the wealth gap, and it's not just the achievement gap. It's the gap between promise and potential and reality and facts. And it's the gap between all the, the wonderful potential of this country and how millions of people are not, whether it's objectively true or not, the, subject, the subjective sense that a lot of people have is that their children were not, will not be better off than they were. And that's, that, that is such a fundamental component of America, that if you work hard and you put away money, your children will be better off than you, that there is progress, there is opportunity to move forward. And a lot of people are saying, my kids aren't going to be better off than me. There's, there's, there's all these institutions in the country, educational, financial, um, cultural, that stand in the way of that of that potential. So people are looking around and they're looking all over the place. They're looking at Barack Obama and they're looking at Donald Trump. You know, they're not conforming to some rational, ideologically correct approach. They're looking at Black Lives Matter and they're looking at, you know, dropping out of politics altogether. So it's a mess, but it's, it's a, it's a growthful potential mess. And I think that something I'm very excited about is that the, the American people 
are engaged. There is a level of interest, of uh, activism that is very exciting. It doesn't always look pretty, but it's out there. And, and people recognize that these professional politicians cannot be relied upon to make sure everything is all right, that people themselves are going to have to be involved in a whole variety of ways. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's, you know, I hear you talking about your excitement about this movement and engagement that you see. And yet, you know, we see so much about the fear of that excitement and engagement will, you know, Will things take a dive for, for much worse? Will we see, will we see like demagogues emerging? Um, will we see, you know, we, we just had a, 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 a real shakeup in this country back in January of this year. I mean, so how do you, how do you, do you when you're excited about the opening up, talk about that as well. Are you also, are you also fearful of it? Well, that's a great question, Jan. I, I, I'm not particularly fearful of it, which doesn't mean that I dismiss it. I think mm -hmm. that if you look, if, if, if you look at uh, some things happening internationally, if you look at countries like Hungary, um, certainly Russia, you, you look at this Turkey, there are these impulses in these democracies towards granting ever more you know, authoritarian power to a single individual. And going back to Fred Newman for, for a moment, I remember a paper he wrote 20 something odd years ago that looked at the relationship between democracy and development. And that if you have a democracy, but you don't have development, it's not really democratic. And I think that that's something that could be going on in different parts of the world is people saying we have no interest in having a democracy if it's not connected to some sort of growthful process. If it's just a democracy on paper uh, and that, yes, we have elections, but nothing changes, nothing grows. Well, why don't we just try it the way that our great grandparents did and they just had a king, you know, and maybe that'll work. And so I, I think that that's less of a dynamic in the United States because our democratic institutions are so old, for better or for worse. They're so ingrained in the culture. I don't worry about that so much. What I do worry about is this, because America has its own version of this, of democracy without development. I think that's what people are reacting to. We elect this person, we elect that person, but it seems like these, these things don't change these broader economic, social, educational trends towards more and more money at the top, less at the bottom, you know, uh, schools work for the elite, but they don't work for the poor, all kinds of things. They don't seem to change regardless of who's in office. And I think in that environment, people get desperate and they look for new ways, good new ways and bad new ways. And that's something to, you know, pay a lot of attention to but I'm not so worried about it. It's more just a feature of democracy on paper doesn't, doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Now you're gonna to have to say more about that. I, I mean, I don't know. It's not, it, it's not 
super deep, Jan. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think people are just unwilling to accept a certain type of going through the most matter. Black Lives Matter is saying, hey, the same old political dance that we do whenever an African-American is shot or like the same old speeches, the same old marches. No, we need to fundamentally change America. Now, you could agree or disagree with the specific tactics or approaches they're taking. But if you look at it more broadly, there is a certain insistence that we just aren't going to settle for the same old political rhetoric that we've settled for for a long time. And frankly, I think something people miss about Trump voters, and I am not a fan of Donald Trump. Um, I don't like him. I don't like his policies. But I refuse to participate in efforts to label Trump voters as somehow they're all racist, um, you know, homophobic nationalists. I think there were millions of people that voted for Donald Trump because they saw a type of calcified Washington elite that was running the country, whether there was a Democratic president or a Republican president, whether Clinton was in office or Bush. They're like, it's the same people. They all went to Ivy League schools. They're all, you know, smarty pants. And us regular people are left out in the cold. And I want to shake that up. And they voted for Trump precisely to affect that. Again, you could say they didn't get what they asked for, that Trump contributed more to the problem than he solved. But people are unwilling to settle for the same old democratic rituals and norms and symbolism that has dominated for a really long time. And that's dangerous. And that's very exciting at the same time, because when people are willing to settle, it's very hard to to create new things and, and shake things up in 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 potentially growthful and developmental ways. But people aren't willing to settle anymore. Yeah. Dangerous and exciting. And I, John, let's let's take a two second break and we'll come right back. Sounds good. Hi, I'm Melissa Meyer, Associate Director of the Eastside Institute. Welcome to All Power to the Developing. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. In each episode, we introduce you to some amazing performance activists, play revolutionaries, and developmentalists from around the world who talk to us about their creative grassroots efforts to build a better world. If you like what you hear, please follow and share the series. You can find us on Amazon, Spotify, and Podbean. We'd love to hear your comments and ideas. Like everything at the Institute, the growth of all power to the developing depends upon the people who create it and benefit from it. We hope you're one of them. Thanks for your support. And now back to our conversation. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking to John Updike, president of Open Primaries, about all things developmental in American political culture. Um, John, uh, I can't help but ask, you have such a terrific background as a stage performer, improviser, 
you were a director and performer in an improv, off-off-Broadway improv musical comedy troupe. How do you, not that it's a one-to-one leap, but how do you think about performance and bringing performance to the work of creating a new political culture in the in the US. Well, you know, listening listening is almost non-existent in American politics. It's just not about that. American politics is about pontificating, getting out your positions, staking out your ground, mobilizing your voters and winning. <laughs> and I I I honestly you're going to think this is too glib, but I think that that what I take most from being an improviser and bringing it into my political activism is listening and really listening and learning how to work with people as who they are and to listen to what they want to accomplish and what they bring to the table and their own set of beliefs and ideas and building creatively with that. And that to me is important because It's going up against just a 200 mile tall tsunami of knowing and talking. I mean, American politics is just one long rant of people who know what needs to happen and what, and they're all on their talking points. And that's tough to go up against and people are very intimidated by it. But if you listen, uh, there's new, new, performances to create with people. That's how I think about it. That's, you know, it's interesting, John, going back to what you were saying about uh, our kind of whole misunderstanding of looking at American politics in terms of ideology. You're on this side of the line, you're on that side of the line, you're red, you're blue, you're this and that. And I'm wondering if this focus on listening helps you listen to something other than an opinion, as people staking out a position in the sand. Does it help you do that? Yes. And also, see, I think in some ways it's also, it's about setting up environments in which listening is important. So let me just tell you a story to illustrate what I'm talking about. So one of, one of my, my heroes is Katie Fahey, who is a young woman who led a grassroots revolt in Michigan against gerrymandering, which for our international listeners is the process of politicians drawing their own districts uh, that they run in. And what she did was she went out to her fellow Michigan citizens and she said, I think gerrymandering is a problem. She didn't say, I think gerrymandering is a problem and I know the solution. She said, do you want to join me in discovering the solution? Do you want to be part of finding out what we can do about this, how we can deal with it, what that's going to take? And she built an army of tens of thousands of people throughout Michigan, every county. She did a town hall meeting in every county in the state in which she listened to people and listen to them in a way that was structurally organized so that what they said mattered. It's easy to have listening activities in which you don't really care what people say. You're just saying, I'm listening because I wanna check a box. She wasn't doing it to check a box. 
And people are smart and they got that. And one of the things that she listened to, she asked people, she said, why are you volunteering on this campaign? Why do you care about this as much as I do? Now, she expected what the answer was going to be was, well, I, I care about gerrymandering. I want to do something about this. That was not the number one answer that she got. The number one answer that she got was, I want to work on a project with people that voted differently than I did in the last presidential election. Mm. That's something I am interested in. That was the number one reason people volunteered on the campaign. She did it right after the Trump-Clinton election in 2016. So I think listening, it's not just opening your ears and hearing what people say, it's being it's valuing the process of listening in, in, in service of creating something together that you can't imagine before you go, before you do it. All power to the developing, eh? That's, that's a whole new take on listening. I, you know, you've been listening with your ear to the ground in all over America. What are some of the values that you hear Americans articulating? Because I, I don't think we really understand much of that through the media. I'd like to know how you see it. You know, I just, I just spent an hour and a half on the, on the phone with a, a very interesting anthropologist in Texas who has formed a firm to do political polling, which is not something anthropologists typically do. Her name is Cecilia Bailly. And uh, she's based in, in Houston. And she did this very deep dive look at Latino voters in Texas. And she asked them all these questions that pollsters typically don't ask people. Because again, she's not a pollster, she's an anthropologist. She's used to learning about different cultures and people. And the, the picture that she painted to go to your question about values is that people are, in general, they value more than anything the experience of being heard. The, the experience that they're, they're part of the fabric of the society. They're not disconnected from it. And over and over, she spoke to Latino voters in Texas that were all over the map on issues. And, and I'm not talking some were conservative and some were liberal. To a person, they all held views that were some combination of Bernie Sanders' platform and George Bush's platform. They're just like, they have a million opinions on all these issues. But almost all of them said, the politicians don't listen to me. They never call me. They never knock on my door. They don't send me literature. They're not interested in including people like me who are not part of these kind of highly organized political machinery in the conversation. So I think, I don't know if that's a value, Jan. I tend to think of it as a value. It's a value for connection, for feeling part of something bigger than yourself and feeling like you can be there as who you are, which is a messy, complicated 
paradoxical person who holds views that don't fit neatly into a voting pamphlet, you know, um, and that's not just the Latino community in Texas. That's the American people. Um, the level of, the level of, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, heterodoxy is, was, mm-hmm. is what the political scientists call it. People that hold views that don't conform to a single narrative is like 95% of the country. It's literally everybody <laughs> has some combination of viewpoints that, that according to the political scientists shouldn't fit together, but it's like the political scientists aren't talking to the actual human beings that inhabit this country. They, 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 it, it, it's a funny phenomenon. Um, but that's the value, I think, that, that my ear to the ground that I'm picking up is just a deep frustration that American politics doesn't allow people to be who they are. Hey, I'm, I'm really appreciating and understanding a new meaning of open primaries, the organization that you had, John, because I think the emphasis there is open, open your ears, open your responsiveness, open your doors, open it up to all of us in this kind of non-binary, non-boxable mass of Americans that we are. How do you, how do you think about that? Well, that's interesting. I I think if I, if I could go back and rename the organization, it would be called open period primaries Uh period, because in some ways (laughs) you're right. The, The open is the most important. It's about opening, opening the doors, opening the conversation, opening, letting people in the primary part of it though, is very important. Say how. Well, I'll tell you, because the primaries, the primaries as controlled by the parties is where the 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 Democratic and Republican parties insist that if you want to be involved in your in politics, you have to play their game. That's what the primaries are. They're like the the you know, the the guy at the at the at the um, at the door of the nightclub. That mm-hmm. basically says, if you want to get in this door and go to the party, you have to have the right ID, the right clothes. You need to pass my smell test. You need to go. You need to be a certain way or I'm not letting you into the club. And so that's a, that's why we focus on dismantling the current primary system, because it, it plays a particular role in American culture. It, it's not just one of a lot of different institutions. It's a, it's a defining institution that shapes so many aspects of, of campaigns and policy and participation. So both those things are important, but maybe I should go back and call it open period primaries, period. (laughs) I like that, John. John, um, when we were chatting before the show, you were talking to me about first principles that you adhere to in some ways in your work in creating a new political culture in America. Can you talk to us a little bit about those? Just tell me what I told you, because uh, I you forgot. Said, you said, um, you, you know, the, the kind of the bottom line was not organizing people on the basis of their ideological beliefs, what they, what they say they're for or against. 
yeah, it's organizing people around. Do you think we should have a process where everybody gets to participate? Mm-hmm. Do you think we have should have a process that allows candidates to to craft a message designed to appeal to all kinds of different people? Uh, do we think we should have a, a system controlled by the political parties or should it be controlled by the American people? Those are the first principles. Um, and it, people are very organizable around fairness. They really, Americans in particular, are very connected to that. They can be like, I believe in national health care. That to me is the most important thing in the world. We have to go to a single payer system. That's my number one issue. I'm number one. And then when you say to them, do you think people that don't think that should have a seat at the table? They say, oh, of course. Oh, of course. Everybody and their view should be at the table. So people have no problem with having strong beliefs and wanting to affect outcomes that they personally believe in, but wanting the process to be inclusive and fair. Those two things are not exclusionary at all, in my experience. So Americans are on the move, eh, John? I think so. And, you know, they don't have a great toolkit. Mm -hmm. They don't have a process that allows them to you know, they're like running through, it's like American Ninja. They have to like, they're on the move, but there's all these obstacles and, and, you know, quicksands and all kinds of ways they get shut down and put into dead ends. And, you know, uh, it's by no means an easy process for people to give expression politically, but they're finding creative ways and they're not giving up. And it's, it's very inspiring, actually. It'd be very easy to give up, given, given how ugly American politics is. And I really think that's the perfect word. It's, it's just downright ugly. Um, but people are demanding some new, some new performances. And that's, that's very hopeful. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to imagine uh, our children and children's children what they might be encountering in terms of democratic process and democracy and what the future of democracy might look like in this country and other countries. Um, it seems well, like, yeah, I know. I, I, I think, I think that one of the things that is on the table now in very positive ways is that democracy cannot simply be about who you, about voting. Mm -hmm. Voting is a tool for democracy, but it is not the totality of democracy. There have to be other ways that people can shape the world in which they live. And I think younger activists are, some of whom I even disagree with, um, are raising this, in important ways. And I think it's on the table. And I think people are, are grappling with it. This big, big, big question of democracy can't just be about voting. There has to be a bigger picture there. Let's discover what that is. John, very inspiring. Creating new environments for democracy and democratic process. And thank you so much for being with us today. John Updike, the president of Open Primaries, 
helping to create a new political culture here in the United States. My pleasure, Jan. Thanks for having me. All Power to the Developing has been brought to you in part by the Baylor Wolf Fund.